Welcome to Men Talk, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the world of miscarriage, infertility, infant loss, and stillbirth. Hosted by Daniel Landau, founder of menshelpline.org, we'll be sitting down every week with real guys to discuss their stories, struggles, and triumphs. So grab a drink, sit tight, and let's talk. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Men Talk podcast. You are in for another exciting episode. Today's guest is Chad Smith, who hails from Houston, Texas. Chad, the floor is yours. Okay. Um, well, uh, you know, like I was kind of just starting to say, I my background, I have, um, I guess I'll just kind of start at the beginning. Um, I, I have had ADHD and bipolar disorder since I was very young, been medicated for it since 14, maybe earlier. Um, I knew I wanted to do something with mental health. Um, and long story short, I got my master's in clinical psychology and then also got a, a, a bachelor's in nursing and, I'm, and I currently work as a nurse and I have, I worked a little bit in psych nursing, but I changed jobs due to the COVID pandemic because that messed with everybody. Um, but in about 2015, um, when I was at, uh, getting my master's, um, I, uh, met my wife and, um, we got married in 2018. Um, uh, shortly before um, our wedding, she sat me down and was like, remember how I said I wanted kids? Let's do that now. And I was like, okay, because that's just who she is. She was like, remember that thing I said? We're doing it. And um, so we we started. Um, we got married in the February of 2018. Um, and we had really been trying for maybe two months before that um uh you know she had gone off birth control and everything and then by march a little before march she she was like i know something's not going right so it's just not i'm not pregnant and i know something's wrong and you know part of me was like well maybe she's just not getting what she wants you know like a little bit i made probably subconsciously a little dismissive but we made an appointment with Houston Fertility Institute, which is a, um, a, a major fertility specialist near us. And they, um, uh, you know, they ran a bunch of tests um, on my wife. Um, they did, you know, they checked, checked all of her, everything going on, her blood tests, everything, all of her stuff came back normal. Um, we had been concerned because she had had a history of an eating disorder. And sometimes that can really affect what's going on, but there's no, she had been healthy and in recovery for well over a year and a half by that point. Um, so then they started checking me and I did a semen analysis and it came back with zero sperm, uh, of any kind. And so, um, which was very unexpected because there was no sign of anything else. And my testosterone was like on the low side of normal, but it wasn't even below normal range. Um, it was like in the three high three hundreds or something, which I think is just below normal. Um, and, um, so, and then, you know, I was a little, a little overweight, um, but I was not, um, you know, like the kind of obese that the doctor was like, this is going to be a problem. Um, so I did a repeat, because we thought maybe I, you know, maybe it just was a fluke. Nope. Confirmed it. They did genetic tests. They did blood tests. They did every test. They, I went and um, they were like, well, go see a urologist and he's going to check, which was basically like, 
this guy's going to touch your balls for a lot longer than you are going to be comfortable with in order to fig- try and figure out what's going on. Nothing. Everything works fine. There's no issues with the actual like conception. And that was pretty much it. There's not really any, there was nothing they could do about it. Like, um, you know, like we asked, do you think weight loss or maybe taking something like a uh, clomiphene, which is a medication for women, both women and men, but essentially it blocks estrogen uh, uptake in, in print, which can cause a feedback, which can produce more testosterone in, um, you know, from, from men's testicles. Um, and, but my wife, we really wanted to kind of move forward. So um, basically we ended up doing donor sperm. Um, and that was really, really difficult um, but, um, we also decided that we were going to try and do a sperm retrieval operation where they would surgically go, uh, into my testicles and try and get some sperm to use for IVF. Um, and, you know, from the, directly from the source and see if, you know, maybe I was making it and there was some kind of, you know, blockage, but, uh, when they kind of to me, they found 10 sperm when normally it would be in the millions or billions and 10 usable ones. And then, um, my wife produced 22 eggs. And so then we had the donor sperm. So we decided we would use all 10 of the sperm that I had to try and fertilize as many of those eggs as possible. And then the rest would be donor. And so basically out of those 10, um, four made it to the blastocyst stage, which is like the, the stage where they're, you know, they, they want them to be, to mature. And then of those blastocysts, uh, only two of them were genetically normal. So basically I had two chances and, um, I think we had like seven from the donor or something like that. And, um, so we tried one of mine first and it produced a miscarriage. Um, my wife had to, um, but it, it, it stopped growing. And so my wife had to get, had to get it removed. Um, and then uh, a couple months later, we tried again. And this time we put um, two embryos in, one from my sperm, one from donor. And we asked them to put in um, opposite genders. So that way we could tell which one was which um, if we wanted to, but we kept it concealed, you know, like we could, we can know which one came from mine, which one came from, um, and then one of them stopped growing and that turned out to be the one for me, but the other one kept growing. And then about nine months later, my son was born, um, Wesley, who is currently refusing to nap. Um, and, um, that was in 2019. And then, um, you know, uh, 2020 rolls around and that fall or so, um, you know, it's been about a year since my son was born. And so that was the kind of the timeline we had wanted our kids to be kind of close together. So my wife looks at me and says, okay, we're doing another one. And we started. And this whole time, you know, I had sort of been reading what I could about it, but there's really just not, I mean, I think that's probably the reason you started this whole organization and everything in the podcast is because there's just not anything out there. I think I'd found 
one book that was like from the early 2000s or something like that, that was like talked about male infertility, but it was more like a, these are the types of male infertility than there wasn't really like a, pro, how to process this. Um, and, you know, without going into, you know, a rant about my country's healthcare system, to put it mildly, it's not great in terms of finding mental health. And I'm a therapist, like I have a counseling experience and I'm like, I cannot find anyone, you know? Uh, so I just was not, and yet I wasn't, honestly, wasn't even really trying. I was mostly just working and trying to be a good, good dad and, and talking with a friend. Um, but then, you know, once we were staring down the barrel of another child, I was like, I gotta get some help. So I kept trying a couple of therapists, um, some couple of counselors, uh, and, um, I found one who was pretty helpful for a while. Um, and then in, of la- I think it was February of last year, I saw the documentary from, uh, Rod Gilbert the um standing up to infertility um on the bbc and it kind of jump started me to like actually really start addressing it um that's when i started working on writing a you know a, potentially a blog and info site and everything like that uh, i watched the easy bit which i saw that you had done an interview with um the guy who made the film uh it's a that's fantastic can't recommend it enough um and um I finally found a Facebook support group, whereas before I had not been able to find any groups at all. And I guess I, I'd never really used Facebook groups, so I hadn't even thought to like check there. Um, so I guess that had existed previously, but and I just didn't know about it. Um, but I, I also was like, well, you know, I don't know what's causing this, but one of the, the only thing that I can think of is that I've always been a little, I had been a little bit overweight, um, you know, so like not, not a ton, um, you know, I'm certainly not morbidly obese, but I was, I was a little bit above what I needed to be. So I decided I was going to try and lose some weight. I went back to the, to the fertility specialist. I was like, look, I just need to know if this is going to work. So he gave me some Clomid, um, and, um, you know, I recommended weight loss and that's what I did. I, I, I ended up losing about 40 pounds. Um, and, my testosterone was the Clomid responded very well to it. And then in August of last year, I discovered that I actually do produce sperm. Um, not, the you know, a normal, I would say normal amounts, but millions and millions of them. Um, Whoa. Yeah. Like almost normal, but yeah. Uh, so, you know, the previously recommended, Still, you know, the previous uh, diagnosis, previous, you know, statement from the doctor that nothing, they didn't think anything would work. And again, I, you know, like I said, I have a background in research. I'm a nurse. I know how to read medical research. And I had really looked into everything I could find um, on it. I used my hospital database, you know, the, at the hospital I work at to try and find. And, you know, I kind of came to the conclusion that as much as it sucks, like, because if he had said back then, you know, if you do, if you do lose weight and do Clomid, this will work. Obviously we would have done it, but I had what's called is idiopathic azospermia, which means no sperm. No, we can't, we don't know why. And I honestly, to this day, I still don't know why. Um, I mean, it probably had something to do with the like 
low normal end of testosterone, but that alone wouldn't explain it. Cause like nothing, none of the other, there, there's no other signs of any other issue. So, um, and then, um, I did get retested off the Clomid and I still, I don't produce as much, but I still produce quite a few, uh, sperm. So weight loss helped, um, but I'm still way below what would be normal. Um, definitely in the infertile range. And again, really no concept why. And so I don't really think that doctor was wrong. Um, you know, and that's something that I've experienced as a nurse, you know, like you can be wrong about the end conclusion that you draw, but like, you know, that's because, you know, I mean, I'm sure that he tells that to 99, if he gets 99 of me in that office or hundred of me in that office, 99 of them, he, or he's going to be absolutely right. If he says, look, losing weight and all this isn't going to help you because we just don't know what the reason is. Um, and that's what, you know, what little research is being done on it kind of shows is that like, if you're at the, you know, if you're at an idiopathic uh, absence of sperm, this statistically unlikely that, that anything is going to work. Um, but I mean, it's, there is research ongoing. It does seem like the medical community is like kind of finally starting to take this pretty seriously. I mean, there are obviously people who have been doing it, but it does seem like there's a more coordinated effort to like actually study male fertility with some seriousness and potential treatments and everything. Um, you know, and then, you know, I've also tried to be more active, uh, you know, as active as I can in the, you know, Facebook support groups and everything. Um, uh, but it's been hard because I, you know, my, my daughter was born, um, last April, you know, almost a year ago. And so, um, having two of them under two years old is a, has been a challenge to put it mildly. It has eaten up a lot of my time. So, um, but, uh, then, uh, you reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and that's how I ended up on this podcast. So, um, that's kind of the broad overview of it. Um, I don't know. Thanks. Thanks for sharing your story. It's definitely interesting to hear, you know, the, the male side of things here. You're the first person that actually told me that you yeah, had to use donor sperm and the other people I've spoken to, you know, that wasn't necessarily the case. You know, they had low, low testosterone, low sperm counts. What was that? like for you i mean that realization how did you decide who to go with what was the process like i mean was it was it a shock to you to say you know yes i'm still a dad but but that sperm came from someone else in that mind yeah well like that's it i mean speaking about it like it's in the past i mean you know my son is still not asleep that little boy um but uh he uh you know, and it, it, it's still something that I think about much less now, but um, as for the reason we decided to go do it, I mean, you know, cause we, you know, like I said, when we talked with the doctor, um, he had said kind of, you know, we'd asked what are our options and he's like, there really aren't any, cause we don't know what the cause is. And like, we asked him, do you think weight loss? Do you think this would help? You know, do you think you know, less masturbation or something would help? I don't know. What, what would you, you know, like anything. And he's like, not that's not we don't really know so um so the only real option was donor sperm if we wanted to conceive using my wife's eggs um and otherwise it was adoption that's pretty much it and 
because of the way our system is set up in the United States, uh, adoption is way more expensive than, as it turns out, um, we spent thousands, tens of thousands of dollars on IVF, and it is still substantially cheaper than adopting a child. Um, and uh, also took significantly less time, even though it took months and months and months. Um, and, you know, my wife is just that kind of person um, that that was our option. So that's what we're going to do. Like the goal is to get a child. Um, fairly certain that if her only option was to steal a child, she might. I Like she's just, she's one of those people who is, when she has her mind set to something, she's going to get it. And, um, you know, uh, and it's, and it's, it's good that one of us was because I was kind of, I didn't even realize kind of how I felt at the time. I think I was just kind of numb from it. I didn't really, I don't even really know how to process the idea that I didn't produce any sperm, let alone that I was going to have to do donor, but I knew it was going to be hard. Um, you know, I had never really consider I never really realized how much of an attachment I had to the idea of having a biological child until I couldn't have one um and uh the thing that I had nightmares about and that you know it did it didn't end up happening a couple of times but um was that somebody would look at my son and be like oh he has your eyes you know because they don't know he's a donor child and um you know that would just feel like a gut punch and it did that that more or less it still happens when i show people pictures of, of my son um and i still feel a little bit like that um but because of that concern um we decided to go with a donor who um resembled my wife's brother my, he he had my wife's brother had, had passed away i think about 10 almost eight years ago now i think um uh, he was about her age and um she uh uh was like well that way if we if he looks like my brother then you know people will just be like oh he just looks like his mom but it turns out that uh like apparently I look like a lot of babies so you know like everyone says that he looks just like me and and everything like that it's like uh it's it's pretty difficult um and I think uh you know I I grew up in Texas um and I was raised here Uh, my parents aren't you know uh, let's say I'm sure that the global media has an image of Texas as very religious zealotry and everything like that. And I, I did go to church pretty much every day or and every week, you know, and at least once a week for most of my childhood and adolescence. Um, but they're, they weren't like, you know, they, my dad was like an executive for Hewlett Packard and my, you know, you know, my mom was a stay at home mom. Like it wasn't, I, they weren't, you know, insane, like Bible thumping people, but I definitely got, the more conservative end of it. And I definitely got a very poor sex education. I don't even really remember any of the actual education about it, uh, except for the fact that they showed us like slides of like venereal diseases so that we wouldn't, you know, like do that. And they were basically like, you better not have sex. And that's, then I went to the church and that's what they said. So, and it kind of, the kind of impression that you come away with like on an instinctive level as a man. And I think it's something that our society really encourages is like, if you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, she will become pregnant immediately. 
appropriately. Like that's kind of the, like, you know, the, the idea you have, you, you're like, I, you know, you, this virility, you have this idea that like, we get better using condom because the, anytime they could get pregnant, you know, and like, particularly with people who are, um, giving, you know, particular angle, political angles on sex education there, you know, they emphasize like, well, it doesn't matter if it's on your period, it doesn't matter. And it's like, turns out for people who are trying to conceive, it's actually really can be quite difficult, even for people who are fertile, like it can be like, if you don't have sex on the right day, or, you know, whatever, like, there can be all number of factors that just make it really difficult to, to, to conceive, you know, for, for me, then to find out, you know, go from, basically thinking I could sneeze at a woman uh, and she would be with child to finding out that I might not ever be able to have biological children. Uh, it was certainly a huge shock. Um, and it's something that I still struggle with. Um, you know, there's, I, I, like I said, I've had bipolar disorder and uh, pretty severe depression. I've always been kind of a, a downer most of my life um i've had uh, uh the, the the character on winnie the pooh i emphasize with the most was eeyore the donkey who's the sad one all the time um and i've even had like you know pseudo hallucinations like very serious you know mental problems and then finding out that i couldn't do this you know i've had a little voice in the back of my head telling me you know that my son's smile isn't mine um, and that kind of thing. And it's been a real struggle and it's really hard, even at the best of times to push back on those kinds of thoughts and then to do it while on the energy, you know, level that you have as a, you know, sleep deprived parent is difficult. Um, and it's something I think about all the time. I have nightmares, um, still, and probably will for a while. Um, I don't anticipate every person who goes through this will probably have the same level I do. And that's just because of my history and my pre-existing mental conditions. You know, I, I doubt every man probably has, you know, the level of stuff that I do, but, um, you know, like I said, I have a master's in clinical psychology and though I haven't actually ever been a professional counselor, I, I know, you know, a lot about the, the, the field. I've read a lot of books. I even have a couple with me here and, um, men, I, I mean, pretty much around the world, they're just not, they're told to kind of suck it up. Um, they're told, you know, you're, you don't cry is the like stereotype. And there are very few exceptions to when it is acceptable to cry, to express pain or emotion and the particular arena i think of fertility because again there's that like the idea that you're supposed to just be able to like sneeze and get your wife pregnant you know is that that arena it's like particularly shameful and that's definitely something that i felt too um uh and i think that makes it even harder to talk about and i'm somebody who's never been shy about telling people my feelings or how I am or, you know, that I'm crazy uh, or whatever. Like it's I'm very an open book generally. And this is not something that I have told majority of people. It was hard to tell my parents. Um, and, you know, my son isn't 
old enough. My daughter certainly isn't old enough to know um, that she, that their donor conceived because they just, I mean, that they don't even know what conceived is yet. So, um, but I worry about what it's going to be like when I tell them um, because all the research shows that you should, you should be open and honest with them. Um, but yeah, I guess I just went on a little bit of a rant there, but um no, it's an important, it's definitely an important rant to hear how you deal with it and how society views men because there really isn't much out there. And men are told to, you know, it's not good to cry, you know, hold it in, be strong. And, yeah. you know, you, you, you look at a woman and you can get pregnant right then and there. Education, mm-hmm. I mean, I remember in my, in my days of schooling, they handed me a baby doll and said, take care of for a night. You know, so much education on, on getting some, you know, don't get someone pregnant. And this is what it's like, take care of a kid. But there really is no conversation, no talking about how difficult it can be for some people. And when going through a miscarriage or going through IVF, I mean, there is no talk at all about getting tested about what treatments are or how to even deal with that. I mean, I'm even sure some couples, even a young high school kids being dumb, you know, not necessarily being dumb, but going to a party and getting someone pregnant, they don't even necessarily realize after having them what a miscarriage is really like, what it does, the fertility side. I mean, society needs to change. Society needs to have more, more awareness about this. I know you, you, you have a clinical background. So how would you approach society and raising awareness and teaching about these issues? You know, obviously they're very, very sensitive. And as society evolves, I would think there'll be more acceptance, but how, how would, how would you approach it? Well, I mean, there's, it's a typical question because, um, you know, how do I think it should be approached is, is probably because like how I would approach it if I didn't already have two donor kids is I would just tell everybody that I have it and I would shout it from the rooftops and I would try to start conversations with people. And the only reason that I haven't really been, more public with it is that I don't I'm worried that my kids would get dragged into it like you know like I and it's because it's also about them too and I don't want to do that until they're older and they can kind of understand and like I can know if I should keep them out of it and like if they're okay you know what I mean like I want to have them involved I don't want to just you know they to grow up them to grow up with you know, an advocate for a particular issue that they're just not, you know, it's, it's, I think it's perfectly okay. You know, if you're just trying to go to work and pay rent, like you don't have to be the person whose issue is male infertility, even if it's something you struggle with, like that's totally okay. And that's true for everything. Like not everyone can be, you know, an activist. It's, it's hard enough just getting through the day. And um, I don't want to, be and that same thing is true you know for kids too like kids have enough to worry about at school getting bullied particularly in the days of social media like it's so easy to google somebody and find out everything that they've ever done online and i don't that's that's the reason why i'm i'm advocating so like that's why i'm not more of an advocate why i haven't like you know gone you know made my own podcast and done all that so you know like that's just the reason that i haven't um uh, been a lot more public about it and um but as for how to approach it, I, you know, it's really hard because I think there's kind of a divide 
between people and like how they accept traditional masculinity in general, like how you view being a man is kind of the determinant on how it's approached. There's a really good book that I have right here. Um, I don't want to talk about it by Terry Terrence real. And it's a really, really good book on men in general uh, in like dealing with grief and just general psychological trouble. And it's from, you know, his experience as a counselor and a researcher and um, he, yeah, he does a very, very, very good job. Um, there's a, a podcast that I listen to called Two Non-Doctors, which is a, a comedy podcast by these two girls, but they talked about, they read this book and they talked about it. It's where I heard it from. Um, that's a, also a great podcast if you're just looking for something light. Um, but they, um, but he talks about how like, there's a lot of, you know, if you're, if you're one of those like traditional manly men, like, you know, the depression presents very differently. It's not wailing and like gnashing of teeth. It's like just being irritable all the time and like having low energy for a lot of people. And, um, you know, it pre- can present as anger rather than sadness and, um, you know, silence rather than, you know, outright grief. Like it manifests very differently. And it's because I think it's a lot to do with how we're socialized. You know, again, we're told to, to just suck it up, to bear it, to tough it out. And, you know, so men do, they try and some burdens are just too big. And like that, some men, a lot of men turn to alcohol or drugs or something like that, like to, to deal with it. And, um, they don't, they don't want to talk about it. And when they do talk about it, like, you know, they either are just completely, utterly unequipped to handle a conversation about their own emotions because they've never talked about it before, or they completely explode. And um, so it's really, really difficult. But on the other hand, there's people kind of more like me who, you know, I, I found out from this process that I had more attachment to the kind of traditional idea of masculinity than I ever thought I had never considered myself a real like and kind of guy like you know when I used to play Mario Kart as a kid I would pick Peach you know Princess Peach as my character so like I was never like I was never an athlete you know so I never considered myself like a particularly manly guy but it turns out that when I became infertile I I, I found I had a lot more attachment to some of the, the more you know masculine aspects of that of, of society than I thought but I've always been very open about my emotion. Part of that is just being mentally ill and going through treatment and everything like that. And also the education there. Um, so I think there's a lot, there's also a lot of men. I think it's probably becoming more common in this day and age as, you know, gender roles are challenged in depending on where you are in the world, obviously. Um, but it's, it's becoming more acceptable for guys to talk about their emotions. And I think, you know, and to go to therapy and to open up. Um, and it's not just for men, but also for women, because there's an unfortunate reality that women are live in the same society. And a lot of times, you know, women are attracted to manly men and see sometimes can see that kind of revealing as a detriment. Um, you know, like I, um, you know, I remember I, I had a friend whose um, uh, wife like almost left him because he was just, breaking down like and because she just like she didn't understand that you know like well yeah it's actually okay for the woman to support her husband like because that's just not the role she was taught 
you know, it's like she's she's not supposed to be the strong one. You know what I mean? Like that's and that's you know they ended up working it out and she became much better. But like there's you know my point is that there are a lot of men who are very open to it, and I think for them it's a lot more straightforward because you're, they're already open to it. Um, but the trick for men who are kind of more in this traditional manly man role of hiding it, I mean, it, approaching the issue, like even talking about it is hard. And I, and I honestly don't know what the solution is to that. Um, aside from, I think we have to start by, I think, you know, doing like what. um Rod Gilbert and Him Fertility is doing what your organization and your podcast are doing, breaking that stigma. Because I think that really, um, I think breaking that spell is kind of a really important thing. Um, it makes me think of one of my favorite books of all time is To Kill a Mockingbird. The um, It's a famous civil rights book in the United States. Um, it's a story about, you know, racism. And there's a scene where basically a bunch of racists in, you know, white hoods are, outside of the jail, they're going to get a, a black prisoner and they're going to hang him. And they're like all ready to go. And then one of the main characters, a little kid says, Oh, uh, Hey, mister. And like, she knows the name of one of the guys. She recognizes one of them. And that breaks the spell just because she recognizes him. He's not an anonymous man in a crowd. He's not just some guy who's being there and the crowd eventually disperses and the guy's life is saved. And I think that we're kind of as, as, as hard as it is to imagine, like we're kind of at that's not even close to the point, I, in my opinion, where we can really even address the like emotional ramifications on a wider scale, because there's just, I mean, like you were saying, there's no conversation happening on a wider scale. Men are just not, not only not expected, but sometimes not even allowed really socially to, to be, you know, struggling with this. And given that, you know, for infertility is something that's potentially going to be a lot common, at least in the next few decades, is yeah, it's a it's it's something that we need to do. So I don't know what the solution is, but I know it's possible. You, you know, there are people who have been in those roles and they've they've gotten through it. One thousand percent. I mean it's the time of vows, I think more and more people are going to start talking about it because what we have to realize is that you're not alone, right? One in couple struggle with infertility. One yeah. in four pregnancies end in a miscarriage. Yeah. One in 160 births end in a stillbirth and one in a thousand babies die of SIDS. So on the infertility side of things, I mean, one in eight, that's, that's a pretty large number. So the guy to your left, the guy to your right could be going through it. And I think what society needs is more men to be open about it and say, I'm struggling with this. I mean, I can imagine sometimes maybe a coworker is struggling with it too. And we all need to really have a community to help one another. And I think that by sharing our emotions, sharing our thoughts, crying about it, talking about it, hanging out together and sharing our stories is how we can really change society's view about this sensitive issue and sensitive topic and there's nothing to be ashamed about nothing to be embarrassed about it's totally totally normal and it's not your fault at the end of the day it's not your fault it's not you know it's not our fault it happens it's part of it's part of life it's out of our control you never know what's going to be chad what what would be your i think that fault thing is so yeah go ahead 
I was just saying that I think the fault is so important, particularly as men. I think there's a pretty universal idea that men like to fix things. Like, you know, that you tell, you know, tell any man that his wife is mad at him and he's going to get flowers, right? Like he's going to try and fix it. Like that's a really common thing to like try and just make it better. And in order to do that, you need to have a problem and you need to know why it's broken and you need to be able to fix. And a lot of times that means assigning blame. And I think a lot of people like to find someone to blame to fault, but sometimes it's nobody's fault. Sometimes it's just not. And I think that that's really good to, to point out that it's nobody's fault. And um, that's hard to reconcile, I think, for a lot of people, because we're just so used to trying to pick a problem, even if it's not a person's fault, it's a thing's fault. There's a thing. And, you know, at least in my case, right, they didn't even know it was wrong. I mean, you know, that's, that's not a, that's not a thing we're ever going to be able to do. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, it's totally fine. I, I apologize. My background, I have, uh, my neighbor decides to do construction now. <laughs> it's annoying. <laughs> so if you hear construction, time, um, what would be your, your, your top pieces of advice to other guys and men going through the infertility struggle, the miscarriage struggle? What, what would be your, your, your takeaways? Boy. Well, you know, but the, the number one takeaway is that every person and particularly every relationship, because this is really a problem that only happens within the con with someone else is different. So, you know, as much as we, I'd love to think, tell people, you know, go talk with, make sure you're having really good talks with your wife about this and very open. It's like some, my, my wife, after a while, you know, like I haven't really talked with her that much about it because we have two young kids. And like, she's really busy. And also, she's also just not the kind of person like she's not going to get it um, in terms of like what I experience because she is so alien. Like the, the idea of like having like a masculine sense of pride is like so alien to my wife that she just doesn't even get it. And that's just the way she is. Like it's her personality. And that's not to say that she's not supportive at all. It just means that in-depth conversations about emotion aren't productive. Like they don't help. But if I tell her I need something, she's there uh, for it. And that's that's kind of the thing is like, I think the, the biggest thing is to not only just communicate, because I think we get that a lot. That's one of the first things you hear when you are you ask people, you know, or you, you start to like seek help is like, well, you need to make sure you're communicating with your partner. But it's like, yeah, but you communicate with your partner all the time. You know, like you, when you ask what they need from the grocery store, the, what matters is the kind of communication. And that varies a lot between people and it can, it can really be difficult. So I, you know, I would encourage people to try and think about, you know, their partner as a person and trying to figure out how they're going through it. Um, and, you know, understanding that it's just like, it's, you know, what you're going through is hard, but they're going through is also going to be hard, probably in not quite the same way because, you know, men and women are raised typically pretty different. Um, and, um, I, but I would say, but communication is definitely key. Make sure you're reaching out to other people, not going through it alone. Um, there are an increasing number of like resources and books out there. Um, in the Facebook, there's a Facebook infertility group is, is very good. There's a couple of people who've actually written books there. There was a swimming aimlessly is one of the books. Um, the other one is my little soldiers, I think. Um, and, um, those are, those are some pretty darn good books. Um, both of those two are kind of narratives. They're not, um, like scientific books or anything like that. Um, 
but also understand, I think it's really important to, um, to keep, keep recognizing your value outside of your fertility is probably the biggest thing. Um, because that's the thing that I really struggle with. Um, I think more than anything is because of my past issues with depression is, you know, it doesn't matter how many times my wife says, well, but you know, your son is the one who, you know, like he knows that you're the one who wakes up with him in the middle of the night when he has a nightmare that, that the donor isn't there. You know, that's not, that's why you're his dad. And that is the thing that I would tell any like adoptive father who was struggling with that idea or any step parent or any, any other donor, you know, fathers, that's what I would tell them, but it's hard to internalize that yourself. And the thing that's probably helped me more than anything is not, is realizing that like, well, I mean, no amount of psychotherapy or help is going to make me feel like his genetic father because I'm not but I can really try and focus on being the best dad that I can be for him in other ways, being there, making sure that I, if I'm the one who's going to get up with him in the middle of the night, that I'm doing the best job and I'm not just short with him, um, trying to be present with him as, as much as possible. Um, and, and to be, you know, a good dad to, you know, my son and my daughter, uh, my son is just the one I've gone through the most of this with because he was my first one. So, um, and, you know, just making sure that you're, you're, you're really trying to be, be the best you can be. And if you're not able to have, you know, like for whatever reason, it's just not working, reminding that kids aren't your only value, you know, like it, it's you, you had, you have a whole life before you have children, like, and that you weren't a worthless person before then. Like you, you know, I, I was a nurse before I had kids. I was a, you know, I was a, a professor before I had kids as I taught while I was getting my degree. Like I, you know, I, I've done things like I've, I've, you know, important things and not important things. And I've made people laugh and, um, you know, I like to think I'm funny and, uh, and, and trying to find value that way. Um, if you're a person who's really handy, build something, you know, um, we have, like I said, we, you know, we men have a need to fix things. So fix something, you know, fix something you can, if it's a, there's a broken appliance, like do something because that, you know, that energy has to go somewhere and sitting back and forth, you know, rocking back and forth, worrying about this particular issue. If that's not something that's helpful, if you're not able to get the help you need on that issue, at least for the meantime, I think there is something to be said for channeling that into a productive area, but the last thing I think is probably the most important is, is to actually seek professional help. And that's hard because like, it can be really expensive depending on where you are. It can be difficult to find a therapist who is like really accepting or, or somebody who really understands, um, which is surprising. Like you said, it's a really common issue. So you'd think that this would be something that everybody would know about, but there's been some really clueless therapists that I've had, um, you know, and, uh, so, you know, trying to find somebody and, and, you know, seeking help and also seeking like support with, you know, like online support groups are probably the easiest one, but you in-person ones as well, if you can. Um, and then I think the last thing is to try and forgive yourself. Forgive yourself, forgive other people, just treat your fertility issues like you would in someone else. 
You know, I mean, you wouldn't think if you found out your brother was infertile, you wouldn't treat them like a lesser person. So try to give yourself that same grace. That's really, really important advice. Men, don't be afraid to seek professional help if you need it. They're there for you if you need it. It's good to talk to them and it's okay to ask for help. And remember, you are not alone. And I'm sure, Chad, if you have guys in, in Houston, Texas who would want to talk to you, I'm sure you'd, you know, you'd be happy to meet up with them. And Absolutely. And I am active in the, I am still active in the, the Facebook fertility group um, uh, and him fertility, the group, the start of a rod Gilbert. Um, if people want to find me there and message me just because they want to meet, you know, talk to somebody who, you know, who speaks, I'm not a, you know, like I said, I, I met some counselor training, but I'm not a counselor. So I can't, you know, be a therapist for you, but I'm happy to try and offer what advice I can. Um, like I said, I'm also a nurse. So I've also coached a lot of people on like how to do injections for IVF and stuff like that. Like if you need help, um, you know, reach out to me and, and I'll, I'll do what I can, but um, there's so many people who want to help. And um, I do think that's an advantage that we have as men is that we're, you know, historically we're the do we're the the guys who are we're people who are expected to do a lot of like take action, um, which you can say is fair or unfair to men or women, but that does mean that a lot of us are very prepared to act. And um I think uh I think that means you can find a lot of help if you really if you really look for it. Absolutely. Well thank you again, Chad. It was great having you on on the show. And uh, we look forward to continuing the conversation. Absolutely. I appreciate you it. You just listened to another great episode of Men Talk with Daniel Landau. If you've suffered from miscarriage, infertility, stillbirth, or infant loss and want to open up about it, reach out. We'd love to have you on the show. You can also join our Facebook group, or if you'd like to get involved and start a chapter in your neighborhood, visit our website, www.menshelpline.org today. Until next week, stay strong and remember... You're not alone.